everything is copy. Welcome to episode three of It's Lit, But Is It Funny? The podcast where we peel back the artichoke of literary comedy leaf by leaf, dipping each one in a finely seasoned vinaigrette before chucking them all in the bin so we can get stuck to the heart. My name is Jonathan Pinnock and I'm the author of the Mathematical Mystery Series published by Farago Books, the latest one of which, Bad Day in Minsk, is snugly tucked up in its Schrodinger box prior to its publication date in early April. Our guest today is the erudite and witty Lev Perikian, who is the author of four excellent non-fiction books, Waving Not Drowning, Why Do Birds Suddenly Disappear, Into the Tangled Bank, and Music to Eat Cake By. I've probably known Lev on Twitter for over 10 years, in fact. He's one of the few people whose acquaintance I've made there who I've actually met in real life. And I reviewed his book, Why Do Birds Suddenly Disappear, on my extinct YouTube channel. And in the course of that, I mentioned that I've never actually been to any of the several reserves near where I live shame on me and Lev got in touch to say he was actually heading down our way soon he'd be very happy to show us around which he did and a very pleasant day it was it was great we saw an osprey we saw an osprey didn't we it it, it kind of it was sat there on the on the dead tree and we we kind of sat in the hide for about half an hour didn't we hoping that it was going to do that kind of that thing that ospreys do in nature programs which is swoop down on a fish until somebody said no it had its fish this morning it's now it's just kind of digesting it and (laughs) still it was a very attractive very attractive bird very attractive yeah very nice we'll talk more about uh levin's work later on our immediate subject for discussion is heartburn the only novel written by nora efron who's more known for her film work both as a screenwriter and director her most famous writing credit is probably When Harry Met Sally, which means that she's responsible for one of the greatest scenes ever committed to celluloid, culminating in probably the single greatest line ever delivered in a film, I'll have what she's having. Fun fact, that line was spoken by Estelle Reiner, mother of the film's director, Rob Reiner. Another fun fact, just to ruin things completely, it was actually Billy Crystal's idea. But it's still Nora Ephron's setup, so uh, she gets the credit for it. Exactly. I'm going to interrupt you there because it, it, it because it wasn't according to Nora Ephron, it wasn't ooh, even her ooh. setup. It oh, was right. it was a scene. I'm going to take this. I'm going to run with it a little bit yeah, because yeah. it's a lovely story that she used to tell against herself and and about the art of collaboration and you know screenwriting and all of that. And it came from a conversation she had with Rob Reiner about the things that they talk about in the scene, which is men and women's you know, approaches to to sex, and so she you know told him what Meg Ryan tells Billy Crystal in the in the scene and he didn't believe it so really that scene is a recreation of conversations that they'd had and it was Meg Ryan <laughs> oh, wonderful yeah oh, um, and it was it was Meg Ryan's idea so in, in that scenario Rob Reiner was the Billy Crystal character saying I don't believe it you know and I think it was Meg Ryan's idea to to I thought well, maybe Rob Ryan's idea to have put the scene in, uh, which I think he kind of wrote in a sketchy way, and then she polished it. And then Meg Ryan said, "How oh, even better? Why doesn't she fake an orgasm at the table, and we have it in a public place rather than it being a private conversation?" And then, oh, that's a great idea. And then Billy Crystal had the idea for the killer line, and he brought apparently he brought about a couple of dozen one-liners to the that ended up in the movie. And this is all Nora Ephron basically saying that you know it's a collaboration. I get I get yeah. the credit for that scene, but it wasn't my, any of it was none of it was my idea. So that's anyway. that's, that's, re- that's really interesting. I, I, that's, yeah, it really is. Every day yeah. of school day. Indeed. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, Heartburn is. Uh, I'm just looking at the Wikipedia thing for it. It's an autobiographical novel based on Nora Ephron's marriage to and divorce from Carl Bernstein. Her second husband, originally published in 1983, the novel draws inspiration for events arising from Bernstein's affair with Margaret Jay, the daughter of former British Prime Minister James Callaghan. So we have Watergate and Jim Callaghan lurking in the background of this, which is rather extraordinary. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. (laughs) Uh, This this, um, 
uh, but let's let's go straight into it. Heartburn is, as you say, yeah, her only novel. Right. I think we we looking back on her life, we can think of her as a, a screenwriter and director. She uh, Silkwood was one of her. She wrote that, which was directed by yep. Mike Nichols. Uh, when I met Sally, and of course, Sleeps in Seattle, and then she directed You've Got Mail, and then there's several more which are probably less well known. Um, but that's that's the heart of her, her output um, that a lot of people will know her for. Um, Heartburn was written in 1983, which is the same year that Silkwood was made. And at the time, she was known uh, exclusively as a columnist in Esquire magazine and other things. And back in the day, when columnists were a big deal, you know, they, some of them still are, but it was, you know, this is the 70s and 80s. And so being a regular, I think, monthly columnist in these magazines and papers was, was you know, you carried some heft. So her marriage to, I nearly said Woodward, no, Bernstein, was kind of a show-busy uh, marriage of two very well-known journalists, and they moved in those circles. So the, the the story, I mean, knowing that about Heartburn is all fascinating for if if you like the the gossip element of it, I suppose you know because you're always based on real life and you can chart the people. And Bernstein was extremely famous, obviously, for, for Watergate, and she, uh, you know, it was a very public way of dealing with something that for most people is extremely private. Um, but uh, I, I'd be interested to know if you came to Heartburn without knowing anything about it, how um, about the story behind it, how it would come across. And I'm sure you know some people at some point must have done. Mm. And I think even if you don't know any of that, it still stands up as an absolutely exquisite example of funny, serious writing, comic writing at it's just about its best. And I suppose we could go into you know, exactly why that is and, and what. I, to give you a clue, I started making, uh, right, I thought I'm going to go through it. It's 170 something pages, including her introduction, which, which she wrote in 2004. And I'm going to write down all the one liners in it. And I gave up by about page yeah. 35 because they're just so, they're just fantastic. There's so many of them. And they're coming, obviously, from the tradition of Dorothy Parker, who she wanted to be as a child. She actually wanted to be Dorothy Parker, not just be like her, but to be her. And the Marx Brothers and Perelman and Woody Allen and so on, a long line of quite often uh, Jewish men, but also very sharp and witty women who were her forerunners, uh, as it were. So... I mean, the, let's just give, just give you one of them. Here we go. So very early on, page one, she's, uh, the, the premise of the story is that she's, uh, Rachel Samstadt is seven months pregnant with her second child and her husband is having an affair with uh, a very tall woman called Thelma Rice. So that's what we discover on page one. And the quote at the bottom of page one, I was crying most of the time, and every time I stopped crying, I had to look at my father's incredibly depressing walnut furniture and slate grey lamps, which made me start crying again. Uh, so you, already you've got that kind of thing, which reminds me of the line in When Harry Met Sally a few years later about making love on the kitchen floor. Is it do, and did you do it very often? No, it's this hard ceramic, Mexican ceramic tile, you know. So it's the, it's taking the, those little observations, the, the very mundane, and elevating them to something funny, but at the same time taking something absolutely huge, which is you know being cheated on by your husband with, when you're seven months pregnant and discovering this, yeah. um, and or reducing it to something, uh, a, a small observation like that. So in, in you know, just one sentence, you've got that extremely serious thing, but also the little laugh, um, the kind of bitter laugh. Yeah. I mean, the, on page 11, you've got the wonderful one, the man is capable of having sex with a Venetian blind. Well, that's the next. Well, that's the next one I have. I've printed out. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I mean, I think what she said, she she wrote and talked quite a lot about it, and she said it's you know it's a thinly disguised story of the the breakup of their marriage, mm. but with many embellishments. But she also said you know that um, she left quite a few <laughs> uh, things out. And at the end of the introduction to the book, I think she says, uh, one of the things I'm proudest of is that I managed to convert an event that seemed to me hideously tragic at the time to a comedy, 
And if that's not fiction, I don't know what is. So there you have her approach to to writing and to life as well, um, in in one sentence, I guess. And there's uh, there's some lovely setups and payoffs, aren't there? I mean, on on page two, mm. uh, where is it? She just said, "My father leads complicated psychological life along with his third wife, who incidentally happened to be my former best friend Brenda's sister." And this yes. throw, there's a throwaway remark to her former best friend, Brenda's sister. And you don't yeah, find out yeah. why until seven, seven pages later. No, where... and, and you don't even find out her name until page 15. And the whole thing is written in this fantastic, the, the voice, which is Ra- Rachel is telling the story to you. And she tells you, some, she breaks the fourth wall occasionally and says, you know, uh, I'm going to put some recipes into this book. And I haven't written any recipes. And... For, for a while we'll talk about the food in a bit but she so you get to know her and you get to be on her side from page one obviously because you discover that the, the, <laughs> the bastard mark her husband thinly disguised as the version of carl Bernstein, is cheating on it so immediately and because of her voice she's telling these things with lots of asides and sometimes the asides are incorporated into a sentence that might otherwise be really terribly sad i mean if you take mm. if you take away those jokes it's a really kind of grim old story of betrayal and failed uh failed marriage and there are all sorts of reflections throughout about how you know she takes a pretty dim view of marriage not surprisingly and it was written in this it was written the idea of it was written while it was all happening and it came out shortly afterwards. So it's in, at times incredibly raw, but you get the you, you get the the jokes to to kind of cover it up. Um, and it's incre- it's it's extraordinarily concisely written, as I said, just 170 pages or so. Uh, and she also has that fantastic way of putting these observations about people into very, you know, small little character portraits. There's one that struck out, struck me really clearly, and it's a tiny thing. It's in the group therapy. And so you're introducing, she's introducing several characters, uh, some of whom play a very small part in the book. But there's this character, Sydney, who's just a very minor character. And she says, Sydney handed me a box of Kleenex. Sydney never really says much in group. He just passes the Kleenex and looks solicitous. And so in the, again, those two sentences, you, you have a mental image of Sydney. You don't know what age he is or you know, who he is, but you have an idea of what his character is you know, immediately. And that's just one kind of one of many, many examples. So the other, I mean, I suppose the other thing that uh, what you said is uh, uh, everything is copy was her mother's, uh, her mother's saying, wasn't it? Mm. Um, yep. uh, so both her parents were uh, were writers, screenwriters. And she told, Nora told this story. She had uh, three sisters um, and they grew up in LA. And the uh, at every meal, the idea was that the children would tell a, you know, tell an entertaining story or, or entertain the table. So you'd have to have mm-hmm. something, you know, that happened that day that you would be able to uh, make your, make your family laugh and occasionally you know their father would give a little laugh and say hey that's a, that's a good line you should write that down and her mother's attitude to to life was you know that there's no such thing as the, the tragedy it, everything is copied so you could go to her with a scraped knee or bruised elbow or whatever you know or one of your one of her sisters had been mean to her and the her mother would not say oh they're there and give her a consoling hug, but would just say, you know, okay, everything is copy. That, that, that turns into a story. And of course, you know, this is, this is what Nora Ephron did pretty much all her life, but in particular in, in Heartburn, which is the, you know, the most extreme example of that. And there's a, there's a bit very nearly in the second last page, um, which really sums it up, I think. Yes. Um, <coughs> She's talking to to Vera, her her therapist. Vera said, why do you feel you have to turn everything into a story? So I told her, because if I tell the story, I control the version. Because if I tell the story, I can make you laugh. And I'd rather have you laugh at me than feel sorry for me. 
because if I tell the story, it doesn't hurt as much, because if I tell the story, I can get on with it. So there, again, there's that, that economy of, of expression, which is just great. I mean, it, it speaks a lot to her journalistic background, I think, <clears throat> which is it's very concise. And you, again, it's the, the, the comedian's way of telling things. But again, this is a, this is a, a serious thing she's saying. And mm. if I tell so, the story, I control the version. She certainly mm. did, because nowadays, if you know about it, nobody's thinking that uh, Carl Bernstein's story is worth listening to. Yes. <laughs> you know, she really controlled the story yeah. to the extent that, you know, to the, they made a movie out of it, which she directed, and there were all sorts of provisos made that, you know, he wanted to be presented as uh, a loving father, well, no matter what they put in the movie about the marriage, it was very important that he was presented uh, as, you know, as a good parent. And she, yeah, I think he was still very angry about it many years later. Because well, she says in the introduction, he keeps threatening to sue me. Yeah, yeah. And that was, but that she was also says, you know, what, 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 yeah, and, and she says, well, you know, what, he was ex he was mad at me for writing the book. Well, of, of course I wrote the book. I mean, what did you think was going to happen? That I would take a vow of silence for the first time in my life? You know, um, and she was also on, uh, on record as saying uh, that writers are cannibals. <laughs> <laughs> so there's... There's definitely that very, it's very, uh, uh, you know, acerbic is one word that has been used a lot to describe her wit. But I think having watched some, you know, interviews with her over the last few days, there was also this terrible, this great warmth to her, her personality. She was enormously uh, loved and admired mm. um, by, uh, by pretty much everybody she worked with. I mean, she was hard, hard task person the task mistress it's not a word is it she didn't suffer fools gladly all that and this kind of nonsense but and of course being a woman she had to do it to the nth degree compared to a lot of the men around her who uh, were possibly less talented or less less hard working um, up until that speech at the end i was vaguely wondering if she was using humor as a way of avoiding dealing with something but in fact, she's using it to actually deal with it, isn't she? Yeah, that's yeah. just her her way of, of doing things. There's another quote uh, that she said a lot, which was, if you slip on a banana pe peel, people laugh at you. Tell people you slipped on a banana peel and it's your joke. You're the hero of the story. Um, so really that is it yeah. is yeah for, for a lot of people like, humor can be a way of key as you say of keeping the world and events and things that have happened to you to, of deflecting it or keeping it at, at arm's length mm. but uh no it was it was absolutely her way of processing it actually you know she it was like as you said you know i i, I tell the story i control the story and then i can get on with it so it's done mm. as far as she was concerned you know, it was for, you know, um, again, another quote from her son, Jacob, of course, appears in the book as one of the, uh, you know, one of the two children renamed. He made a documentary about her in after she died about five years ago. And he said, for my mother, heartburn was her central act of resilience. To my father, it was steeped in revenge. And I think that's something that comes across to, to a lot of people, which is that it's, you know, it could be construed as a very bitter book or a very angry book uh, and that's where she gets it I, I think where she gets it just right because that bitterness is not just balanced but it's kind of by some alchemy it's converted to uh, comedic gold so but it, it doesn't stop it from being a, a, a deeply serious there's some really serious you know things go on there's a very moving description of her mother her dying twice uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember that bit. The, the 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 bit where she's in she's in hospital and it looks like she's died, um, and then she springs back to life. To, to shock, sorry, spoiler alert. Um, there's the there's the terrific passage about potatoes, quite near the end, but not not absolutely at the end. Uh, it's oh, called yeah. 
uh, I can't remember what chapter chapter it's in, but it is you know it's potatoes, potatoes and love, and it's that <laughs> thing about you got you got to, it's hard work making crispy potatoes, but you have to do it at the beginning of a relationship because believe me, if you're not going to go to the trouble at the beginning of the relationship, you'll never do it. <laughs> um, mm. Which again, all this all uh, so much of it, reading it again, it prefigures, and we watched I watched Mario Sally the other day as well, with, you know, a bit of research, and so many of the lines prefigure. Uh, when Harry met Sally and the feel of them and these uh, uh, yeah these just observations but just with a little um, bit of sharpness to them. What do you think about the, the recipes? Yes the food. work for you? <laughs> the food yeah the food really does work for me partly because the character the thinly disguised Nora uh, Rachel is a food writer and she uses it she uses the recipes, of which there are about 15, I think, dotted through the book, as sometimes they're pivots to talk about something else or to introduce another character or to just to, to counterpoint something of dramatic importance that's just happened. And sometimes, you know, it, it's natural for her as a food writer to, to write about food. And, and if she was talking to you as a friend, she'd say, oh, I must give you the recipe for whatever it is. They do slightly, uh, there's an index of them at the back of this edition, the Royal edition. Um, yeah, almonds, yeah. toasted, page 28. Beans, lima with pears, bread pudding, cheesecake, four-minute eggs, hash, bacon and hash. They slightly place the book in the period it was written, sort of late 70s, early 80s. And they talk about pesto. I think she talks about how one of the characters says, oh, you know, pesto is the quiche of the 70s. Um, so, and now, you know, that was when pesto was, oh, God, this new amazing thing that everybody had. And, of course, there's the, the recipe for the key lime pie, which plays a pivotal yeah. role in the, in, in the plot at the end. And also the, the recipe for vinaigrette, which she early on kind of says... Well, you know, Mark wouldn't. Uh, Mark, Mark might have left me. If he left me, he wouldn't get my recipe for vinaigrette. And then at the very end of the book, again, spoilers, everybody. Uh, she does actually give him the recipe, which is a really interesting sort of little mm. twist. This is after she's decided to leave him. So uh, again, so there's a, there's the, the for for me the food really does does work. She wrote about this again. Uh, there's a terrific book called. The most of Nora Ephron, which is a collection of her her, her writings throughout her life, which is really well worth getting. Mm. Um, and she says this, I'm going to just kill some time by reading again. I'd come to realise that no one was ever going to put my recipes into a book, so I'd have to do it myself. Um, I included Lee Bailey's recipe for lima beans and, uh, is it lima beans or lima beans? I don't know. Anyway, those beans yeah, and pears. <laughs> Unfortunately, unfortunately, I left out the brown sugar, and for years people told me they'd tried cooking the recipe and it didn't work. A food writer who wrote about the book carped that the recipes were not particularly original, but it seemed to me she missed the point. The point wasn't about the recipes. The point, I was starting to realise, was about putting it together. The point was about making people feel at home, about finding your own style, whatever it was, and committing to it. The mm. point was about giving up neurosis where food was concerned. The point was about finding a way that food fits into your life. So the, I think it would be a lesser book without the recipes because they're completely in, in keeping with Rachel's character. Mm. And they do help. They, I think they help you empathise with her because she is the kind of person who is going to you know, break off from a conversation and say, oh, I must tell you how to cook these potatoes you know and so much of it revolves around food there's one terrific description uh, which is about herself uh, it's about herself when she's pregnant where she describes her belly button as like a pumpkin stem and her feet like old cucumbers yeah here we are there i was seven months gone sway back awkward bloated logie with a belly button that looked like a pumpkin stem and feet that felt like old cucumbers if pregnancy were a book, they would cut the last two chapters. Um, <laughs> so even when she's not, you know, writing the recipes, there's a bit of a food uh, mention yeah. there. So it's, uh, and there's another one, which is really, uh, God, this is, you know, it's about her mother. She drank and drank and drank. And finally, one day her stomach swelled up like a Cranshaw melon 
and they took her to a very fashionable hospital for rich people with cirrhosis. And the doctors clucked and said there was nothing that could be done. You know, and so this is describing somebody who's drinking themselves to death. And yet you get a description that, that is just on point about the, the her stomach swelling up. And uh, yeah, there's a rhythm to it as well. And of course, mm. the, the, the autobiographical bit comes in because that's exactly what her mother did, what Nora Ephron's mother became a very serious alcoholic later in life. So, um, really? yeah, yeah. So there's, there's, a, there's so much, there's so much in it. And uh, yeah, I don't think there's a, I don't think she puts a foot wrong. Mm. Because you could sort of look at it and say, this is a very slight book. It's only, as you say, 170 odd pages. Uh, it, there's scarcely a plot, but so much happens in it, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. There is scarcely a plot. You're right. I mean, there's there there is character development, I suppose. The people are kind of. It's difficult because the the end of the book isn't chronologically far on from the very beginning of the book, is it? Mm. A couple of months, right. but there's, there's you know going sort of going yeah. back and forth in time and telling the story, mm. which incidentally is a diff- very different way the the film. Um, takes a different approach. Yes, and we watched the film, and I honestly thought, "My, this I really didn't like it at all." No, did, oh, did yeah, you I, like it? <laughs> I, 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 I'd seen the film years ago, mm. and I'd never read the novel until you picked it. Yeah, and then I watched the film again, and no, I, I, I didn't think it worked. I thought, no, it's extraordinary, and and yeah. the, the weird but, thing, I, it might have been something to do with. Uh, Carl Bernstein kind of hovering, saying, no, don't do it, you know, well, not hovering literally on set, but mm. the threat of him, you know, his, his wrath uh, I, stopping I, them. I, I, I think what it was for me is, is that there was, for most of the film, the fourth wall remained intact. Mm. Whereas in, if it were truer to the spirit of the book, yeah, she'd be you'd talking have sort of yeah. stylistic things coming like you you would have recipes sort of coming up suddenly on the screen or something yeah and it's, it's really interesting because all the things that so many things that i love about the book which are that sharpness that we got to know and you know mm. when harry met sally um and sleepless in seattle as well which just they have this sort of zinging quality and the if you think about in when harry met sally the the four friends mm. so you know billy crystal um and meg ryan and Bruno Kirby's character and um, Carrie Fisher's character. And they are sort of inseparable friends and they, they're just fantastic dynamic between them. Mm. And in the book Heartburn, there is the same thing going on with Julie and Arthur. Yeah. And they have this back and forth relationship and it's got depth and it's got, you know, interest and you know, empathy. And she uses Julie and Arthur to... to highlight things about Rachel and Mark that are not around so on but in the film all of that is, is pretty much lacking I thought and I mean Jack Nicholson just uh, he doesn't really yeah I know <laughs> we watched the film the other night and we're crikey that was too, not a fun we could spend the whole time ripping the film apart actually <laughs> but, but the weird thing is that it was directed by Mike Nichols who yeah. is just a you know, great director and who she loved and who loved her. And so something, I mean, it might've been the casting. It might've been, uh, I don't know. It's but something about it. It just uh, didn't do it for me at all, especially having just reread the book and marveled at how snappy everything is and how tight and how fast and, you know, yeah. and, how she packs so much into a, into a short book. But I mean, actually, the other thing I'd noticed because that the criticism that is leveled at it sometimes, as you say, is there's a there's no plot um, and uh, nothing happens. But actually, I made a list of the things that do happen. Um, and there's a murder. It's a yep. very background murder. There's a mugging. There's divorce. Obviously, there's two childbirth. There's she attack. Uh, she approaches issues of, of mental health and friendship and love and sex and there's food and there's drink and there's so you know and there are believable characters that you either root for or hate or have ambivalent feelings towards or you know and there's a flawed central character what, what more could you possibly want from a book well, exactly <laughs> yeah. 
I, I just go, go back to the film. Yeah. Yeah, let's give the film a kicking. <laughs> <laughs> the, the weirdest thing about the film is that it was Kevin Spacey's uh, first speaking yes. role. Yes, first screen role as a, 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 a very d- unbelievable mugger. Yes. Yeah. And uh, there's an actor only much of these days, isn't there? <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Can't imagine why. No, yeah. no. So we've, uh, we've given the film a good kicking anyway. We have. The, 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 book, the book is wonderful. I'm, I'm, very, I'm very pleased to actually have a, a reason to read it, actually. It's, um, I, oh. I'm, Good. Well, I mean, it, it, it was on my shortlist, wasn't it? I mean, I'd suggest yeah. it half dozen. I mean, but I have to say that when you contacted me, that immediately being you know that kind of person, I I thought PG would host Douglas Adams because those were my great formative. I basically read nothing else between the ages of mm. twelve and twenty. <laughs> no, Dick Francis once a year for Christmas, but you know that was those are the the voices that that formed me and are still at the heart of my own writing style I guess but I suppose also in the background were not books but the Marx Brothers films and that line of of uh, of humor of comedy so that informed it as well so it's not not surprising that when I did read Heartburn I suppose in my uh, 30s I guess it did say something to me even though I wasn't a twice divorced woman um, (laughs) from New York I think the the other thing, just going off at a tangent about, you know, she she you come away from it thinking, well, she takes a pretty dim view of relationships and marriage, uh, which is certainly the case. But the irony of all that is that in short, fairly shortly after it, she met her third husband, with mm. whom she was extremely happy uh, for mm. the rest of her life. So. <laughs> kind of negating a lot of the things that her character says <laughs> from that trough of despair. You know, it's like, uh, you, she says to Vera, it's all very well for you to say that. You got the last good one. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and some of it does make pretty uncomfortable reading for, for a man, I suppose, but that's, that's never yeah. a bad thing. Never a bad no. thing. No. So you followed a fair, you took a fairly unconventional route into getting published twice. Yeah, I Three did. Actually, I, because first of all, you, you self-published. Yeah. Waving, not drowning. I was, actually, I was actually looking at my copy of it, and it was published in 2013. On the very first page, this is this is in, in characters, uh, Barrington Orwell, the conductor. Mm. Yeah. If there was a clue to be found in my ancestry as to my future career, then it certainly wasn't to be found easily. Music played no more part in the lives of my parents than subtlety and humility do in Donald Trump's. <laughs> oh, uh, the, such force. Finger on the zeitgeist. Such eh? <laughs> in 2013, I wrote. 2013, yeah. yeah. there you go. <laughs> yes, yeah, so that, that book was the result of uh, a series of articles I wrote for hmm. a trade classical music magazine about the art of conducting, uh, which also is an unusual route to being published, being a conductor for 25 years. Um, Mm. So I'd been uh, working as a musician, as a conductor for a couple of decades, and it had occurred to me that there was scope for uh, articles about, you know, the the funny side, but not, Mm. yeah, what people, I hate hate having to describe it because you can't, it comes out as cliche, you would say, oh yes, well, it's a sideways quirky look. Um, yes. <laughs> the zany antics on the podium and it just turns you off immediately. But um, it, I, it kind of took as its model two things. Firstly, the Stephen Potter um, gamesmanship book oh, yes. from the 50s. I don't know if you remember those, yeah. uh, which aren't particularly fashionable these days, I don't think. Probably, maybe for good reason to know, I haven't reread them for a while. I'd be interesting to, to look at them. Yeah, actually. it'd be interesting if, to If out there who wants to do um, gamesmanship, uh, Yep. <laughs> yeah, lifemanship and one-upmanship, one-upmanship, things that were, you know, uh, kind of um, in in the vocabulary for a while and still are. So that that was my first model, and the other one was a book called "I an Actor." Do you know that? Oh one? yes, yeah, by, um, Nicholas, by Nicholas Craig, Nicholas so, Craig, actually yeah. Chris Douglas, I think, um, who wrote it. Yeah. And it is uh, the, the edition I've got of that has got uh, Nigel Planer right, as yeah. the actor. In, in 
in green room mode, looking very broodingly at the camera with a towel barely covering the necessaries. Um, in <laughs> and it, that is a fantastic sort of demolition of the world of the actor. Yeah. Um, again, that was written in the eighties. So th th those were my models for waving, not drowning. Which is, you know, you've got to you've got to laugh at conductors because they're not going to laugh at themselves very much. Mm. Um, and I did. So I created my alter ego, Barrington Orwell, taken as with all great uh, characters from the signposts of of England. There's <laughs> the, two villages in Cambridgeshire, one called Barrington, and the other one called Orwell. So you're just driving, ah, oh, Barrington all well, that's good. And so it's told as if from the first half is Barry's, uh, the story of his life and his, uh, how he, his childhood and how he got into conducting. And then the second half is his way of explaining the mysteries of orchestral conducting to, to the ingenue conductor. So uh, I had great fun writing it. I haven't reread it for a while. It's probably a load of old rubbish, but <laughs> I, I, I must say I enjoyed reading it. And as a self-published book, it is very well put together. And, um, well, yes, I did. I mean, if anybody, it, it's kind of yeah, it's interesting. Thank you. I did read quite a lot about my self-publishing had changed already then from what it was five years before that. Or mm. 10 years before that and in the 10 years or eight years since it was published i reckon it's changed even more but it was at a time when self-publishing was uh, beginning to be a more respectable alternative of mm. people who either couldn't get published or couldn't be asked to get published <laughs> <laughs> but the things i did spend money on were uh, getting a professional editor and uh, and a cover designer so yeah. i knew i wouldn't no, that's, that's do that's you know what it's like you can't you have to have somebody else look at it whatever it is and yeah. i could not have done cover so the cover is good um mm -hmm. and it's yeah it's uh, i fiddled around with the, the the design a bit as well so it tried to make it as much you know look as you say like a professional product rather than something that's been printed off from the internet and book two is why do birds suddenly disappear which i would say it's very much in the tradition of Round Island with a Fridge and are you Dave Goldman and that sort of challenge book yep. with a slightly up market twist to it into <laughs> Simon Garfield sort of territory. <laughs> oh, that's nicely put, yes. So that is, I mean, that, that was the result of a, a, a few kind of things coming together. Firstly, having self published a book, there was a big question of what next, and I had mm. some things you know, bits of fiction, which I'd never quite had the motivation to really, to pedal, uh, or maybe I was, didn't think they were quite good enough. And I had some ideas, loads of ideas, and it coincided with the time when the crowdfunding thing was beginning to get going. Mm. And I would, I'd been aware of Unbound for a while as a the as the crowdfunding publisher. I think Andy I say, Hamilton... It strikes me as being utterly terrifying <laughs> to be so public with raising money for something. Yeah, it is. I mean, raising... It, Raising support for something. It's you kind of what they say when you do is it. So Scott Pack, who is the editor who who commissioned it mm. from one band, he's, he said, "Look, if you've got, uh, I can't remember the numbers, but you know, if you've got ex friends or ex people who you think you can persuade to part with Y pounds, and I think the numbers might have been, you know, a couple of hundred people, twenty quid." Or oh, actually, it's more than that. It's it's more than that. The cost of getting a book made like that, but that's the idea. So you just look at your uh, the people you know, and your ability to go out there and what they call getting in touch with your inner American, um, if you're in a Donald <laughs> Trump, you know. So rather than that that very British thing of I say, well, actually, I, I don't know. Ah, uh, yes, well, perhaps I, I would you be so. <laughs> <laughs> so I've written this book you know do you go out there and say okay I'm making this thing it's going to cost you this and for this you'll get this and please do it yeah so there were some very good hand gestures very good podcast hand gestures accompanying that last sentence so, <laughs> uh, which you'll never see yeah I, I, it, I could I could sense them yeah so um so so that's the idea and lots of people do it and not everybody succeeds I'm lucky I suppose in that having worked as a conductor in the amateur orchestra business for 25 years, I have uh, a lot of people in my in my dress book who I know well enough 
to send them a you know an email saying hello and i think having self-published a book which a lot of them had read that they they will have had some faith in my ability to string together a sentence or two Mm. so that was yeah but it's it's not easy as you say to throw yourself upon the mercy and it's not for everybody but it was it proved yeah it proved life-changing really Um, and the paperback has just come out has it the paperback has just come out yeah it managed to sell enough in hardback to to um to get uh, slightly belated but a, a paperback release anyway mm-hmm. and it is as you say yes it's round island with the fridge but with birds um yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's the story of my return to bird watching uh, after a gap of 30 odd years of having been a very keen bird watcher when i was a kid and then forgot about it because of other things and then in middle age, returning to it and you know, taking to it uh, like a duck to water. And uh, so the, to give it a bit of uh, impetus, the, the, you know, the, I set myself the challenge of seeing 200 spe- species of British bird in a year, which you know, immediately means I've got to travel around the country and see things and people. And uh, you know, it helps with the, the narrative drive. So that was that one. Mm. I mean, it, it's full of lo- lovely observation, and um, I was just trying to find because I, it's, uh, I, I realised before, uh, just before uh, I started doing this, uh, get preparing for this, that I couldn't find my copy of the book, and uh, and Gail had borrowed it to to read for my oh. wife, and, uh, <laughs> and uh, so I just got hold of it. And I was just trying to kind of find a, an example. Pick a page, any page. Pick a page, any page. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway. No, no. If I think of anything that I, good that I wrote in it, I shall let you know yeah. at the end of the podcast. I, I suppose what I was trying to do, and this leads into the next book very neatly, is rather than you know do because I, I have read a, I've read a couple of similarish books, which is basically you know my life in birding, and I was very keen to avoid the whole. Thing. And then we saw a uh, pied wagtail. And uh, after the pied wagtail, we saw Kestrel, and that was good. Um, you know, what I did in the holidays kind of thing. So the, and one of the ways of doing that is obviously to get lyrical about the birds and write about what it is that uh, I find exciting about them, but also to have a look at the people that I met along the way, and which is anything from just randoms in the park to serious professional birders whose wealth of knowledge is just extraordinary and which they mostly wear very lightly indeed and will share with you know share with whoever they happen to be with so so that was part of it and i think that was the it gave rise to the next book um into the tangled bank which was picked i was on the back of it i suppose on the back of Say, did, did, did they uh, the publishers come to you after seeing they um, did yeah they did yeah. it was it was a, a, a kind of relationship that i'd built a lot so many so many of our relationships are on twitter aren't they and so much of this has come from twitter which is you know why twitter is can be a very good thing so simon spanton it's a long story but basically he's a, a editor of many years standing and we got to know each other on Twitter, partly through a shared love of nature, but also a shared love of those observers' books. Do you remember those observer books? Oh yeah, observer book. Yeah. Simon has a, a vast collection of them, which he will um, trot out at a moment's notice. And he, I think, I'd been. It was a time when I was writing a weekly blog back in the day, and he'd been kind enough to sort of retweet those. So obviously, I knew he was well disposed, and I'd just started the. Or well, was well into the crowdfunding campaign for what turned into Music to Eat Cake by the second unbanned book. Mm. But I, he got he just got a new job with a, a um, small publisher, very excellent publisher, Elliot Thompson. And he rang me and said, "Would you be interested in writing something for them?" And I went, "Yes, please. Thank you very much. Mm. Give me money in advance. That's great." So that the result of that was into the Tangled Bank, which is the you know, a, a tour around Britain looking at nature, but also but with a, the, the emphasis being on the people that I met on the way and taking as its premise that we are part of nature. Uh, it's not just something that's separate from us, that we are included in in the description. Yeah, I mean, the, the lovely thing about that was, was reading about places that 
I'd actually been before, but been myself, and um, wanted to go back to them, like the um, the uh, the place at Tring, the uh, Rothschild. Collection. Oh, the, the, the national, yeah, the National History Museum, Rothschild. Yeah. The the the, the Hertfordshire arm of the Natural History yeah. Museum. Yeah, extraordinary place. Yeah. And set in Tring Country Park as well, so you can go for you know nice a bracing walk afterwards after yeah. having looked at thousands of uh, stuffed birds and yeah. insects. And, um, totally weird place. We went there uh, when when our daughter was uh, doing art PCSE, mm. I think, and she's looking for things to draw or paint. Yeah. And, uh, well, there's yeah, there's there's lots there, um, <laughs> and that came from. I mean, I think the the uh, Rothschild was Walter Rothschild. He was uh, it's the late nineteenth, early twentieth century, and it was his idea was to cram museums. This is well, obviously, you know, before television and all of that nonsense. And he noticed that the museum experience was kind of exhausting one, in that it's just everything was far away, and uh, you didn't get up close to things and it was all presented in a very not accessible kind of way so he what what he wanted to do was make the visiting a museum much more what we'd now say immersive so everything was the the, the displays were very carefully crammed together but so that you could see everything at pretty close quarters but that you would get this impression of being surrounded by all these uh, animals never mind that they were dead and stuffed but that you you know you'd been plunged into something and that's what they stick to today and i think it's it's pretty effective, but at times quite overwhelming that you turn the corner and there's a, a stuffed polar bear sitting next to 40, 45 other things, right, kind of surrounding surrounding it. Yeah, so that, that was uh, actually usefully, it was uh, written, when was it published? Uh, paperbacks coming out this June, so it was 2018, uh, 2019, I'll get lost. But it was written before the pandemic, so I could travel around quite yeah. easily. <laughs> Yeah, and the other one, the, the latest, I suppose, the latest book, "Music to Eat Cake By." Yeah, that was another Unbound one. That was the second Unbound, and yeah. that one came from again thinking, "What am I going to do next?" And it's the most crazy idea that you think, "Oh, gosh, what a brilliant idea! I wish I'd thought of that." And I thought, actually, if I thought of that, <laughs> oh God, no, 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 no. Well, it was, it was, but it was that was exactly the reaction I had. So I had it at three o'clock in the morning, thinking, "Okay, what can I do next? What am I, am I going to crowdfund?" This is before I'd had any contact from Elliot and Thompson. So, I, you know, uh, I'd been flushed with the excitement of mm. having a book out and it getting some reviews and all of that sort of stuff that goes with having a book out. And then you go, "Okay, so what next?" It hasn't propelled me to instant international fame and fortune. <laughs> Who would have thought? And again, it was people say, where do you get your ideas from? And it's the, having the ideas isn't the difficult bit, in my experience. It's actually knowing which ones are the good ones and which ones mm. are going to turn into something. And this yeah. one was kind of the result of not having ideas, but also thinking about what I could do to set a book apart from others and thinking about the crowdfunding model so i just thought well if i as well as asking for money to make this book how about if i ask people to give me things to write about so okay so if you then say give me x pounds and i'll write a 2000 word piece though if you make a book of ever diminishing length essays starting with substance at the length and finishing with 100 words whatever then you have maybe something that that could be you know, quite interesting bit of, you know, potpourri, as it were. So, and then I woke up the next morning and thought, okay, well, that's a shit idea, isn't it? That's terrible. That's awful. But I did, you know, uh, tried it out on Unbound and they went, yeah, no, that's actually a brilliant idea. Um, so we launched it and then the idea of the money started coming in, which is good, but also the ideas started coming in, which was uh, interesting because, yeah. you know, I have some very sadistic friends. And the ideas they gave me, I'm just going to read some of them to give you a flavour. So the first one to come in, it actually is in the end, the first one in the book, which is getting the best out of enthusiastic amateur musicians, which is something I can definitely write about because I've been doing it for 30 years. And the, the second one to come in uh, reads as follows. This is the title. The intrinsic link between chocolate, the Wombles and musical theatre in post-millennial Britain. 
And of course, <laughs> I've reserved the right to refuse things if I thought they were inappropriate. Uh, for, you know, and I did say, I think in the the crowdfunding email, I said, "Don't give me anything topical because by the time the book comes out, it won't be topical anymore." And also politics. Yeah. No thanks. But but that one just made me okay. Right, that's very clever. My brother-in-law gave me how not to cure hiccups at midnight on Ride Esplanade, based on an incident um, uh, that he and I had. Uh, the bassoons in my life that was a good one cricket clothing through the ages and so on and so on so there's 40 of them including music to eat cake by which is just a list yeah. of music and cake really and again i just tried to you know always trying to write something that i'd like to read myself is probably what the... <laughs> that's always usually a pretty good guide I yeah it is yeah if you start trying to write trying to second guess your audience you're it, it's never going to work Onto a hiding to nothing, I think. Yeah, really. absolutely. Yeah. 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 So, yeah, that's uh, it's gone into completely different directions to what I thought it might do. But then there, you know, that's life, isn't it? <laughs> mm. So I guess the other the next question is, what are you working on now? I, I'm sure I saw on Twitter that you, you just finished writing something. Are you I have just finished writing. Anything about yeah, writing? I just finished. It's, it's, with, it's with the editors, the Elliot and Thompson editors right mm. now and managed to get it done. It is, um, and again, this kind of worked out quite well. Having become almost by default a sort of nature writer, um, mm. uh, I thought I, I do enjoy looking at nature and I particularly enjoy looking at birds and I do like writing about them. And having done two books, which were me going out from my home to far-flung bits of the British Isles to, to look at nature, it occurred to me that perhaps it would be nice to look at something closer to home. So it is a, a year on my patch. But the, the, the thing that I thought of to make it stand out a little bit more is this concept that I've become very interested in, which is the the way of dividing up the year from the go, go comes from ancient Chinese times, but is also known now as the traditional Japanese calendar, which oh, is dividing it up yes. into seven, dividing the year up into 72 micro seasons. So mm. each one is about five days long. There's the odd six day to even it up. And each one has its own little name, you know, so like a haiku, you know, geese mm. fly north or um, crocuses bud or whatever it might be. So it just occurred to me that that might be a, a useful and interesting way of l charting the progress of the year. It's like taking an almanac and really kind of focusing down into the minutiae of it and see if, you know, if, if you could if you do notice the difference between one set of five days and the next and and so on so that and that year starts in february in the old calendar mm. and so i started writing that last february and about a month in <laughs> we are told that we have to stay uh, yeah. stay at home and stay on our own local patch so they it's it's worked out in those terms uh, really rather well um you know, so it's uh, actually your fault then all this it's my yeah it's my fault it's, it's yeah. like if i'm going to do it everybody's got to do it <laughs> but it has made i think it the i don't know what you found but about being creative in the pandemic but uh, it was for me at times it was really very difficult to to sit down and just get down to anything um it, 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 it's strange i mean i i had a book to finish off or to, to write i had mm. a book to write all of last year and i i did because I had a book, I had, I had a contract to write a book. Yeah, it helps, doesn't but, it? It helps focus the yeah. mind. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> but thinking about other things that I might wish to write speculatively, mm. uh, it's been difficult. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That, I think that's been a common a common story. And obviously we're, we're very blessed in that we do have contracts to, to fulfil. Mm. Um, and I know there's lots of people who don't. So, you know, there's... Uh, but and certainly that focused the mind um, uh, wonderfully. <laughs> to yeah. say, okay, I actually have to hand something in at some point, you know. <laughs> um, yeah. And it and it's got to be at least not utterly shit. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, you, you don't go with the um, uh, Douglas Adams uh, approach of enjoying the the wishing, the wishing the, sound, the wish the deadlines they fly by. Well, it, I did, I'll confess it did that one. It was one loose deadline did whoosh mm. by, but it was a pre-arranged um, whooshing, as it were. Yeah, so, I must admit, uh, my deadlines were a little bit, little bit saggy. 
Yeah, well, I mean, but, uh, editors are good that way, aren't they? They're very, yeah. very forgiving. Um, yeah. Say, okay, right. you know, we understand. It's all yeah. right. There, there. <laughs> Have another biscuit. <laughs> so yeah, <sighs> so that's that's that. It's all good. And uh, so, so what know. happens? Uh, what happens next? Well, I mean, that's that, that'll be that one will be out in in the autumn. All things being equal, mm-hmm. and there are I have other ideas, other things that may or may not appear, but uh, nothing that is yet at a stage that I can talk about it. So, um, yeah. are you tempted to branch into fiction? You see, I was asked this the other day by somebody else, by um, Antonia Honeywell uh, on her show, and yes, I am. But I really, I. Uh, oof. Fiction's difficult, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, you do it brilliantly. You, but I have it because you've got to. I know that they say that um, fiction's great because nobody can tell you you're wrong. You just make it up, you know. But then mm. my experience with fiction has been broadly short stories have been kind of manageable, but but difficult in their own way because not a wasted word and all of that and all sorts of other things, but. Uh, for long form fiction, a novel, you know, I've tried novels and I've sort of completed one kind of, but you get that thing of you start and you've got these ideas and you start writing and it's all going really well. And then you get about 20 or 30,000 words in, and you go, ah, oh, shit. Um, <laughs> that's mm-hmm. not kind of what, but uh, no, hold on, but he's dead, isn't he? I killed him in chapter two. Um, and if, I, if he does this now, how is that going to work out? And for, oh God, but they're in Coventry and this is going to happen. Oh no. So, you know. An awful lot of writing novels comes down to logistics. Yeah. Well, that's what PG Woodhouse said, wasn't it? He just, yeah. you know, oh, we've just got to make sure that, so that getting these strands to come together. Yeah. I mean, if um, you look at the, co- the code of the Worcesters is the one, isn't it? That, yeah, that, it's the, yeah. It's, how things keep turning up in the right place all the time is extraordinary. Yeah, um, and it was a craft, and he was fantastic at it. So, uh, yes, that uh, there may be fiction, who knows? But I think it, uh, at the moment, um, it just feels like what I can manage and what I'd kind of, if I have the strengths, then it's just looking at things and writing down stuff about them. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever those things might well, it's, be. It's obviously working out very well for you. Well, I'm enjoying it, you know. And, I, I'm, 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 I'm enjoying reading them. <laughs> okay, well, that's good news. That's, we, we wouldn't want people to hate it. I have had people hate it. With uh, There are some marvellous reviews. But people don't like footnotes, do they? Or some people love them. Oh. And other people really... But they've obviously never read The Third Policeman. No, well, The Third Policeman was, was kind of my model. Where you go, fantastic. <laughs> uh, you turn the page and the first three lines are body text yeah. and the, ne- <laughs> the rest of the page and a couple of other pages are the footnotes. Yeah. And I love that yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. But no, there was one... Uh, I managed to spur one person into not only not finishing the book, but he opened uh, Waterstone's online account and wrote the first review he'd written for anything ever. <laughs> he hated it so much. Wow. That his one-star review was accompanied by, I'm sorry, but you know, this, this has forced me. He's like, That's uh, fantastic. So, yeah, he laid the book aside. He laid, Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a badge of honour. He laid the book aside yeah. and, and regretted parting with his £14.99. <laughs> Wonderful. So interesting. And I can see why I think footnotes do divide people, because if you want, if you're the kind of person who wants things all to happen, one after mm. the other, one after the other, just in a linear fashion, then it does make the reading experience more difficult. But I think the art of the footnote, and maybe I've kind of, there were too many, but the idea is that it is, uh, it adds to the reading experience, but it is definitely something you couldn't put in the main text, mm. that it belongs yeah. elsewhere. Um, so, yeah, as you say, the third policeman is the, possibly the best example of it. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for coming along. Thank you very much for inviting me. I've t- very much enjoyed talking about humorous writing and uh, really great to revisit Heartburn after yeah. years. Uh, I was uh, grateful for the opportunity to actually read it for the first time. Everybody go and read Heartburn. It's a great book. Yeah, absolutely. It's great. Yeah. 
and uh, go and read the loads of books as well. Oh, do that so, as well. Yeah, yeah. If you've enjoyed this, or even if you haven't, but just feel sorry for us, please feel free to reward us by buying our books. You can find the details on the respective websites. Lev's is levparikian.com, and mine is www.jonathanpinnock.com. And do please rate, review, and subscribe. You'll find this podcast in all the usual places. Next time, I'll be talking to Abby Hayden about Cold Comfort Farm by Stella Gibbons, as well as her own books and her work as an editor of comic fiction. See you then. <laughs> I have a small songbird perching in a tree, drab in colour and singing a song I don't recognise. I wonder if, unlikely though it is, I've stumbled on some sort of rarity. Maybe one of those exotic warblers I've glossed over in the field guides. I begin to get a little excited. Eager to record the moment for posterity, and hoping I'll be able to shed more light on the mystery when I get home, I take out my phone and record a snippet of song. I'll send it to Andrew. He'll know. Andrew is my birding mentor. Not that he knows it yet. It's just a decision I've made, like Benjamin Braddock deciding to marry Elaine Robinson in The Graduate. Andrew works in IT, but we know each other through music. Formerly a violinist in the very orchestra I've just come from rehearsing, he clearly divined the direction things were taking and jumped ship. Choosing to pursue his musical activities in a choir, where the technical challenges are presumably less terrifying. But we've kept in touch according to modern custom, via Facebook. And it's there that I've seen the occasional post that reveals him to be a keen and accomplished birder. He's just the person I need to guide me through my year, and I've been gearing up to email him about it. This is the perfect opportunity. I send him the recording. Andrew, hope you're well. Just wondering if you can help identify this bird. Something exotic? All the best, Lev. Within a few hours, I get my answer. Hi, Lev. Depends what you mean by exotic. It's a robin. Best, Andrew. This is going to be harder than I thought.